Hello, ahoy, and welcome to a brand new episode of the Fun Kids Science Weekly. My name is Dan. Thank you so much for joining in as we journey around the universe, searching out all the science secrets that are lurking around the solar system. Now, I can say our award entry for this year's Greatest Podcast in the History of the Universe Award has been sent up. It's on its way. I've not heard anything yet. I will update you as soon as I know whether we've been shortlisted or not. So keep your fingers, your tentacles, or your horns crossed if you can. Now this week, we'll dive under the ocean. We'll look at sea sponges. You see, they're strange. They've got no nerves, no muscles, no central nervous system. But somehow, they can sneeze. You can find out why with the marine expert Nicholas Kornder. Any freshwater or marine water body you have on this planet, you will find sponges. Uh, so they're incredibly successful at you know conquering habitats, and they also are uh, some of the oldest animals that we actually know, uh, and developed over six hundred million years ago. So that's quite old, preceding the dinosaurs and basically all multicellular animals that we know. Also, we're looking at the summer of sports this year with Techno Mum. We've been on this for a few weeks. We're finding out how gadgets make sports better. Today, it's all about Paralympians. Those blades must be super strong. I mean, imagine if they snapped. Oh, they are. They're often made of carbon fibre, which is light and tough. Over 80 layers of carbon fibre are glued together, then heated to bond them together. The exact length and shape, and even the design, depends on the athlete. Isn't carbon fibre kind of bad for the environment? And I've got your questions as always. This week they are on atoms and bubbles. It's all on the way in a brand new Fun Kids Science Weekly. Let's kick things off with your science in the news. Record-breaking hot and dry weather in the UK this summer has meant more exotic plants have grown in the country. Gardeners have seen a rise of figs and avocados grow in this baking weather. Now, this is interesting because the world getting hotter is not a good sign for the climate crisis. But a lot of people eat exotic foods, avocados, things like that. And the carbon footprint to move them all around the world is absolutely huge. So if they're growing closer to where people are eating them, that's a slight positive with everything getting hotter, I think. Also, people need to be less squeamish about drinking water taken from sewage plants. That's what the Environment Agency in the UK has said, because they're planning water recycling where they're collecting sewage water, which is taken from toilet waste, they're treating it, and then they're putting it into taps. Now, there has been a huge drought, so we need water. But is this really the best option? Do you want to take a nice, refreshing drink of something that was once in your toilet? I guess you have to trust the scientists, don't you? And that they'll make this old poo water safe to drink. And finally this week, the sounds of whales have been recorded off the coast of Scotland for a whole year for the very first time. Underwater microphones were used off the Hebrides, a group of islands at the top of Scotland, to listen to what they sing. More than 12 terabytes of data has been gathered from the mics that are placed around 100 metres deep. Uh, They've done this to track the effects of climate change, to see which species are moving around the sea as the different parts of the ocean gets hotter. And I always think that tracking the effects of climate change is a brilliant thing. And to do it by listening to whale song is a very innovative idea, so I really like that. Let's check in with Professor Halex now. For the last few weeks, we've been hearing his series all about your mouth. 
You see, Alex is a genius about bodies. He knows what's going wrong with your arms, your legs, your feet, your lungs, your heart, your ears, your eyes. This time out, it's all about your gums. What's going on in his oral health help desk? This is the Digital Dental Depository. Now, this week, it's all about which toothbrush is best. <laughs> to honour great uncle halitosis, dentist extraordinaire, on the occasion of his 100th birthday, Professor Halleck is creating a pop-up digital dental depository, an oral health help desk. He's going to see how many questions all about teeth he can answer against the clock. I think the turbine's nearly up to speed. We're going electric today, or our toothbrushes are. Are you ready, Nanobot? I'm ready. Here we go. First question. How do electric toothbrushes work? Different electric toothbrushes work in different ways. Most are powered by rechargeable batteries which rapidly move the bristles up and down or in circular motions. These are known as oscillating brushes. Others vibrate and some oscillate and vibrate. And now there's an even more high-tech way to clean teeth. Sonic toothbrushes use an oscillating action but combine it with ultrasonic waves to send thousands of high-frequency pulses onto the teeth, helping dislodge plaque and to get a really deep clean. Another good start there, Professor. Next question. How are electric toothbrushes made? Electric toothbrushes are assembled in a top-secret bunker run by sharks who are experts in tooth care because they have lots of pointy sharp ones to look after. Professor... Only joking! Like most gadgets, the electric toothbrush on your bathroom shelf has come a long way. First of all, someone has to come up with a design. The design will depend on the toothbrush's job. Different toothbrushes are designed for different jobs. For example, they make very good dinner ladies. Sorry, Nanobot! What I meant by different jobs is that some will be for children and some will be for adults. So the size of the handle and the brush heads will differ. Some electric toothbrushes are designed to be kind to gums, whereas others are for removing tough stains. That might affect the type motor used and the softness of the bristles. Quite a variety. Here's the next question. What happens after the design is finalised? Well, the toothbrush will go into production in factories, run by the dinner ladies I mentioned earlier. Behave, Professor. All right. Tiny pellets of plastic are melted and moulded into separate parts. Machines will assemble the rechargeable batteries and the bits that move. For toothbrushes, which use ultrasonic technology, the bristles need to move at extremely high speeds and so the motors will be more powerful than those in other electric toothbrushes. Once the separate pieces are ready, other machines will put everything together. If you have an electric toothbrush, you'll know that the brushes are separate to the handles and they're assembled separately. The bristles are pushed into tiny holes in the moulded plastic, often secured by tiny staples. The bristles will be trimmed to create the best shape for getting in all the gaps. Time for one last question. True or false? As well as electric toothbrushes, you can get electric flossers? True! Flossing your teeth is really important, but it can be fiddly to use tape or interdental brushes, especially if your teeth are closely packed together. These days, you can get gadgets which use an electric motor to pump air and mouthwash between the gaps for smiles all round. That's correct, and time's up. Brilliant, Professor. Very respectable score there, and lots of data for our digital dental depository. 
Professor Halix's Digital Dental Depository, with support from Philip Sonicare. Find out more at funkislive.com slash Halix. Let's get to your questions then. If you've got something that you want answered, you need to let me know and I will do the digging for you. Uh, Tilly has done that. She is nine years old. She's left this as a review on Apple Podcasts, which you can do too. She wants to know how bubbles are made. Tilly, I guess you mean bubbles that you make in the bowl, then you dip that little hoop on a stick in and then you blow it out and they float through the air, right? Well, it's all to do with the soap, the very strong soap that's in the water. It's strong enough to wrap around a little pocket of air to stop those little pockets escaping to loads more of them. Now, it stretches all around it and it keeps that surface tension. It keeps it bound quite taut, which traps that air in. Then it rises and it floats through the air. But they can burst, don't they? Well, they burst because soap is drawn towards soap. So that means bubbles in the air will try and merge together. And when they touch, they pop. Also, when the water that's making that bubble gets too hot, when it finally evaporates, the gas escapes. It's not there and it pops, Tilly. Thank you for the question. You can also send in a question by leaving it as a voice note on the free Fun Kids app or at funkidslive.com where you can be the star of the podcast just like this. Hi, I'm Ethan from... Um, Melbourne, Australia, and my question is, um, why do atoms never touch each other? Bye. Lovely to hear from you, Down Under. Thank you for taking the time to send in this question. Atoms can't touch because the outer part of an atom is made of electrons. An electron is a tiny subatomic particle. Uh, They surround the atom. And electrons work a bit like a magnet. They repel other electrons. So when two atoms get too close, they push and force each other away. Well, they can meet and they create a bond, which is when two atoms join together to make something new. But they're not properly touching. They're kind of linking their webs together. They're sharing electrons without properly touching, Olivia. And that's why they can't touch, because of electrons. Thank you for the question. If you've got something that you would love answered on the show, leave it as a voice note. Send it to me on the free Fun Kids app or at funkidslive.com. It's the Fun Kids Science Weekly. Now, this week, we're looking at sponges. Sponges under the sea. Sponges who don't have nerves, muscles, or even a central nervous system. But it turns out, for some reason, they can sneeze. And we'll find out why today with Nicholas Kornder from the University of Amsterdam, who's good enough to join us. Nicholas, thank you so much for being there. Thank you for having me, Dan. Great to be here. Just first, take us under the ocean. What are these sponges and where might we find them? Well, basically, sea sponges are wherever you find water, so to say. Um, Of course, you have some very extreme environments like hydrothermal vents where, you know, multicellular animals cannot survive. But any freshwater or marine water body you have on this planet, you will find sponges. Uh, So they're incredibly successful at, you know, conquering habitats. And they also are uh, some of the oldest animals that we actually know. Uh, and developed over 600 million years ago. So that's quite old, preceding the dinosaurs and basically all multicellular animals that we know. So without getting too deep into evolution, why have these sea sponges 
developed million, hundreds of millions of years ago, and then that, that's, that's all they do. They don't have any muscles. They don't have a central nervous system. Why do they just stay there? What's the point in them, I guess? That's a good question. Well, in nature, at least as, as I understand, things that work out usually persist. And sponges are incredibly adaptive. They can, uh, you know, survive in very low food environments. Um, they can survive in waters that are incredibly murky. And they just have a very high tolerance against uh, ecological stress. So um, from that perspective, why would they change evolutionarily if things just work the way they, they act with their very simply structured bodies? Where do they fit into the animal kingdom? Are they a fish? Are they some strange mammal or a crustacean? Well, sponges belong to the Porifera, which are, you know, the among the earliest animals in in the whole animal kingdom. Um, we have, you know, other very primitive organisms like jellyfish, corals, and there there are some uh, debates on who are the actual earliest and, um, you know, things that we call sister clades, where it's not always sure how organisms diverged, especially when you go very much back in time. Yeah, sponges are the earliest or among the earliest animals we know. Um, and they're their own group of animals, so to say. And all of them have a very simply shaped body in which water is moving. They have tiny little holes on the outside through which they you know, suck in the water in which they live. And then it travels through the sponge body, passes specialized cells that can take up the nutrients and the energy from the water. And then the water exits the sponge through larger holes that we call oscula. And the whole research around what sponges take up and what they release has always revolved around this water flow. Um, so that's probably one of the reasons why we're just now discovering that there's also a flow of mucus. And when we looked at that closer, we realized that, you know, as you mentioned, despite not having nerves or muscles, for some reason, they are actually able to produce mucus move it on their surface and then eject it with a contraction in a very similar way than we humans do that. So when we humans sneeze, it's normally because something has irritated our, our airways or our nose and, and it's our way of getting it out. That's what the mucus is. It's everything sticking to it. Why would this be the same or very similar, do you think, for a sea sponge? Essentially because the same thing is happening in the sponge body that we see in our bodies. Um, what you said is exactly right. We produce mucus, which is a cost for us, um, but it's beneficial because it, it lines our airways and it collects all of the particles that we breathe in, like dust, um, and it transports this material upwards into our sinuses, where we can then eject it with a good old sneeze. And a sponge, as I mentioned, has this unidirectional water flow where water comes in on the outside through tiny little holes, it travels through the sponge, and then it exits it through larger holes. And what's happening is that when the sponge sucks in the water, there's stuff in it. There's sediments, there's other particles that the sponge body doesn't want that would clog up the water channels inside. And in order to prevent that, and this is now our speculation, um, they essentially do a slow motion sneeze. So we can observe that the mucus is coming out of these tiny little holes where water is going in. 
and we can observe how it aggregates into little clumps. And we observe how the sponge then um, periodically contracts, uh, which removes these clumps from the surface where the water is going in. So we have a flow of mucus lining, you know, not airways, but waterways in the sponge, traveling against the direction of the water flow, and this way moving out particles that would otherwise clog the system. And that's the analogy to a human sneeze. Nicholas, if they have no muscles, how are they forcibly throwing this mucus out, do we know? Well, the sponge sneeze is not as forceful as a human sneeze. In fact, it takes about 20 to 50 minutes, according to our observations, for a sneeze to um, run through the sponge body or through parts of the sponge body. So what we see is a very slow contraction. Um, and yes, the sponge doesn't have muscles, but it has other ways to you know, um, increase or decrease the volume of its individual cells. And if the volume of a bunch of cells together decreases, you essentially have a contraction. How this contraction is actually leading to the to the dislodging of these mucus clumps that build up on the surface. That we don't know yet. For that, we would have to run other analyses. Now, in the mucus that we sneeze out, it might be uh, pollen or dust that we've kind of sucked in accidentally. What kind of, what's making up the mucus that these sponges sneeze out in the sea? What we observed in it are things like limestone chips. So, when you have a coral reef forming, the corals are essentially taking out minerals from the water and they're precipitating it into um, a crystallized form, which is the, the coral skeleton. And that happening a lot essentially builds the entire reef framework. Now you have things like fish, parrotfish and other like sea urchins, grazers that, you know, they go for the algae that grows on this reef bottom on this crystallized bottom, but they also take up some of the actual pieces of rock. And this then um, turned into sediments. So this is basically how all the beaches in the world are formed. So you have a whole bunch of fish swimming above the reef and dropping sediments with their feces. Um, so these sediments would end up in the sponge body and it would be very difficult for the sponge to to release them with the water flow because gravity pulls them down. It would have to really pump hard in order to rid itself of these of these limestone chips and other sediments. And that's why we think it has developed this other mechanism to remove them out in the other direction. We also know that there are undigested parts of algae which uh, belong to the diet of sponges. Um, some of the sponge cells, so these specialized cells I mentioned that sponges have to take up nutrients from the water, they need to be replaced quite quickly, actually. So um, the mucus also contains some of these older cells that have been rejuvenated and replaced with new cells that the sponge is now ejecting into the environment. And there you go. That's why his sponges snort, sort of do a very slow sneeze. Nicholas Kornder, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. It's time for this week's Dangerous Dam, where we look at the most mean and wicked things in the universe. This week, we're headed to the Amazon River in South America. It's the home of the Kandiru, otherwise known as the vampire fish. Now, it's not a big creature, this fish. It grows to a couple of inches long. It looks sleek, a bit like an eel, but it's a catfish. It's a parasitic catfish, and it feasts on blood. 
It lurks around the bottom of the riverbed, waiting for another fish to swim by, and then it will creep towards them and almost nestles amongst their gills. Those are the flappy bits on the side of their face that they breathe through. Now, when it's in there, snug and in position, it feasts. It's a parasite, which means it lives off another creature. So it sucks blood from the other fish to make itself strong. And when it's eaten, sometimes it grows plump and bloated and gets stuffed chock full of blood. And it doesn't just stick to other fish. The Kandiru has been known to attack humans, to climb into bodies through cuts and other holes to suck out all the human blood too. And that is why this strange Kandiru, the vampire fish of the Amazon, goes straight onto our Dangerous Dan list. Let's check in with Techno Mum now. She is our gadget genius for the last few weeks. Uh, she's been running us through the summer of sport, teaching us what's happening with tech in games. How are gadgets improving the sports that maybe you've been watching over the last few weeks? Now, this week, it's all about Paralympians and how they use running blades to push themselves along the track. Techno Mums Sport Technology. Sam's excited about the summer of sport and is finding out how technology and sport are linked. He's seen some videos of athletes using running blades and is keen to find out more. Come on, Johnny. Yes, he's done it again. Who's done what? It's Johnny Peacock. He won gold for Team GB in the men's 100 metres in 2012 and 2016. He runs with one of those blades on his leg. They look so cool. Like something from the space age. Oh yes, prosthetic blades. Some competitors have one blade, like Johnny. Others have two, like Richard Whitehead. I think he won a gold in the 200 metres in 2012. And he broke a world record. Mm, I don't really see why they're such a strange shape. Well, the curve at the bottom of the blade helps absorb shock when the blade makes contact with the ground. And that curve also acts like a spring to help the wearer move forward. They often also have spikes on the tip to help them with the grip. I've got an idea. Come and have a bounce on the trampoline. What? So, fun as this is, what's this got to do with prosthetic blades? What you're doing is using physics in a similar way to Johnny Peacock on his blade. But he was going forward, Mum, not up and down. It's all to do with two types of energy, kinetic energy and potential energy. The two types of energy are exchanging as you jump up and down, making you travel. Did you know that energy can't ever be destroyed? Oh. It just changes its form. My energy's feeling pretty destroyed. Whew. Go on, just a few more minutes. It's a lovely day. The same physical processes happen when we run and when athletes use prosthetic blades. Potential energy is converted to kinetic energy, resulting in oh. forward motion. Oh. But when we're running, we don't bounce. Bouncing is all thanks to the springs. Springs always want to return to their original shape, and they'll force the energy used to stretch them out to snap back again. Prosthetic legs are basically springs which provide the wearer with the potential energy a full-bodied athlete would get from their muscles, tendons and ligaments. OK, I get it. Can I stop now? Oh, all right. You won't be winning the 2028 Olympic gold for trampolining unless you practice, though. I can live with that. Just check out how fast they can go. Those blades must be super strong. I mean, imagine if they snapped. Oh, they are. They're often made of carbon fibre, which is light and tough. Over 80 layers of carbon fibre are glued together, then heated to bond them together. The exact length and shape, and even the design, depends on the athlete. Isn't carbon fibre kind of bad for the environment? You're thinking of carbon dioxide. Carbon fibre is a man-made material made up of microscopic threads which are woven together. It's stronger than steel. They look so fast. Could they be able-bodied athletes? 
What if some athletes had blades and others didn't? Would that be a fair race? It's a good question, and one that's got experts talking. Blades are lighter and so for long distances can help prevent fatigue, but they put different stresses on the body. And add to that, the human leg is much better at converting potential energy to kinetic energy. And the more kinetic energy, the faster you go? Gold medal to that man. It just means that whilst the margins are pretty slim, it's not a clear advantage to have blades. That said, there's always a debate as the technology is constantly improving. I wonder what Johnny's blades will look like in the future. Maybe he'll win another gold. I think that's rather more likely than you bringing home the trampolining medal. <laughs> Techno Mums Sport Technology is created with support from the Institution of Engineering and Technology. Find out more at funkidslive.com slash technomum. And that is it for this week's Fun Kids Science Weekly. If you've got something sciencey that you want answered on the show, leave it as a voice note for me. You can star in our podcast on the free Fun Kids app and at funkidslive.com. Now, we've got loads of brilliant shows that you can hear. You've heard some today. We've got tons more on Apple, Google, Spotify, wherever you hear your shows. They're on that app and at funkidslive.com too. And Fun Kids, we are a children's radio station. Listen to us all over the country on your DAB digital radio and on the Fun Kids website. I'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.